You're listening to the Dangerous Prayer Sermon Series at Sojourn East. In this series, we see how God invites us to grow in Christ-likeness and step into His mission as we learn to pray, search us, break us, unite us, and send us. Today's scripture is from Ephesians 2, 11 through 18. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the laws of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. This morning we're wrapping up our series that we've entitled Dangerous Prayers, looking at what it means for us to pray, unite us. And as we've said, the heart behind the series, these prayers, they're not so much status quo kind of prayers where we're asking God to maintain what's already going on in our life. They're disruptive prayers, prayers that challenge us, that force us to ask hard questions, that might require God to do some heart surgery on us. And I think that this prayer, on the surface, it seems pretty benign and pretty simple and pretty easy. But I think when you're really willing to step in and consider what it means to pray, Lord, unite us, I think you'll feel the weight and the cost of it. It's interesting to me, there are many things, I've been a pastor for about 15 years, and there are a lot of different things that people are passionate about. And I can look out in the room and I, I like know a lot of you and I, I see you, I know that's what you're passionate about, theology or community or mission or evangelism or mercy. There's a lot of things and I, I hear, because I always hear the feedback about how we can be better in those things from you and how you want to make them better, which is great. The one thing I've never seen or never had someone approach me about with deep passion is this call to unity. Like it never seems to make it to the top of people's lists. It's always at least five or six rungs down on the list of priorities. And that's interesting to me because when you read the New Testament, the theme of unity is front and center and it's repeated over and over and over again. In John 17, it's the night before Jesus' death, Jesus prays, and it's the longest prayer we have recorded of Jesus, and in that prayer, he prays for himself, he prays for his disciples, but he also prays for each of us who follow him to this day. And I think we can all agree that whatever Jesus prays for, the night before his crucifixion must be pretty important, must be pretty close to his heart. And of all the things he could have prayed for, as he looked into the future, thinking of the billions of people who would follow him, of all of the things that he could have prayed for, Do you know what he prayed for? That we would be one. That we would be united. And the picture the New Testament gives for the church 
It's a beautiful, magnificent picture that we've talked about and even sung about already. It's a picture of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathering together and worship right next to each other. It's men and women, old and young, rich and poor, black, white, and every shade in between, Republicans, Democrats, even UK and U of L fans, all kinds of people being brought together to worship Jesus. And that picture, I mean, the picture of the church, it's a picture of redeemed humanity. It's a picture of the new human society Jesus has come to create. And that picture should ignite something in us, but I just know for many of us it doesn't. And it's not because we don't want to see that happen. It's not for the most part. I think rather it's the gap between God's desire for his church and our present reality is pretty massive. You know, our country is more segregated on Sunday mornings for one hour on Sunday mornings than the rest of the week. Segregated by race, but also segregated by politics. Segregated by economics, by age. There's a whole lot that divides us, a whole lot that keeps us from stepping into the unity that Christ has secured for us. And that's why I chose this passage from Ephesians 2. Here in Ephesians 2, Paul, he tells us not only what the church is supposed to be, he also helps us understand why unity is so difficult and so challenging for us. And so we're going to jump right in and look at this under three headings, basically. Number one, we're going to see what Paul tells us about what's at the root of our problem, why we struggle to get along and to live in unity. Then we're going to move forward and see what God's solution is to our problem. And then I want to finish by talking about a few different ways this should shape and a few different prayers that, that should flow out of this as we're praying that God might unite us. But we want to start, why is it so hard? Why is it so hard for us to get along? And it's important to, to know that Paul, he's writing to a church that's deeply divided along racial lines. We know something about racial divisions, but the church he's writing to is deeply divided. And if you're familiar with the New Testament, you might know this, but it might be new information. Really, the theme of the entire book of Ephesians is Paul is trying to tell two groups of people who are at odds with one another why and how they should be living at one. That's the whole book. And there's some great sections that we can pull out and read that have great truths and great theology. But that's the big reason he wrote this letter. He saw this church where people just couldn't get along. And he's saying, you got to get along. And so he lays out this vision for Jesus' church. And he comes right down Main Street by clearly naming the problem, what it is that's dividing these two groups of people, the Jews and the Gentiles. And Gentiles are it's anyone who's not a Jew. And we see this in verse 14, where he talks about Jesus, says Jesus is broken down in his flesh, and we're going to talk about what that means later, but he talks about the dividing wall of hostility. He says that there is a wall of hostility that exists between these two groups of people. And what's interesting is the nature of this wall. The wall is actually the law of God. It's the law of his commandments and his ordinances. So he's saying there's two groups divided, and what's in the middle of them are the Ten Commandments, all of the cleanliness laws, all the ceremonial laws, all of the laws that seem kind of strange to us when we read the Old Testament, saying that's the wall that's separating these two groups of people. And I don't want to get too bogged down 
But a little background is really essential here to understanding what's going on in this church in Ephesus and the nature of why this wall brings this separation. And you have to go back to Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God comes to a man named Abraham, and he puts a promise before him. And there's really two sides to this promise. He says, number one, Abraham, I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. And so the first part of the promise is that after the fall, humanity is at odds with God. But God, he comes to this man, Abraham, and he says, Abraham... I'm going to choose you. I've chosen you. And I'm going to bless you. And a whole nation's going to emerge out of you. And you guys are going to be my holy and chosen people. Through you, I'm going to show not just my ways, but also the ways to me and how humanity can be reconciled to me. So God says, listen, I'm choosing you. But there's a second part of the promise. The second part of the promise is God says that through Abraham's descendants, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. All the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. And so God gives the Israelites the law, the commandments, all the regulations to set them apart, to make them holy, to make them distinct, and to show the rest of the world, hey, these are truths about me. This is what life looks like under my rule and reign. This is how you were created to live. Now, what happened was, the Jews, they twisted the doctrine of their election into one of favoritism. They really cling to the first part. I'm going to bless you and choose you and you're going to be unique. But they didn't really step into the second part, that through you, everyone else is going to be blessed. Instead, the Jews, they, took superior, they found, felt superior to other people, especially because of the law. We're different. We're better. That's why at the beginning of this, Paul talks about the circumcision and the uncircumcision. If you're not familiar with the Bible, I know that can be strange, but circumcision was the sign of the covenant. All men were circumcised. And so Jews would take pride. We're circumcised. The way they would insult all the Gentiles would be like, you're uncircumcised. You're outsiders. You're filthy. They would call them dogs. They would insult them, which you can imagine didn't make the Gentiles all that fond of the Jews. They called them lazy because of the Sabbath. They didn't work on the Sabbath. They called them snobs because they wouldn't eat pork. And so this deep, deep division existed. And this division goes back thousands of years. And then Jesus comes on the scene and Paul is saying, hey, we're to be one now. It's not an easy task. In your entire life, you've been raised, you know, as a Jew, you've been, your entire life you've been raised and been taught that those people are unclean, they're dirty, they're filthy, they're vile. As Gentiles, your entire life you've been raised to taught, be taught that those people are strange, they're weird, they're arrogant, they're unlike anyone else. In between deep hostility. Now, I don't want to get bogged down in all the particulars of their situation. Rather, I want to show you how their problem, it's actually just an example, a case study of a universal human problem. In my elementary school, like most elementary schools, uh, I think around third grade, the, the administration decided to pull the talented and gifted kids out of class every day for a couple of hours. 
Uh, and so they were called the tag kids. The rest of us, you know, we were the cons, the common or ordinary nobodies. And we were friends. But then over time, what happened, they would get pulled out of class and they would be escorted to some upper room, you know, in a part of the school that most of us uh, weren't allowed into without a chaperone. When it would come time for lunch, I mean, we'd spend a few hours at the beginning of the day together. Uh, they'd be escorted away, and then when it come time for lunch, you know, the cons, we would eat our lunch of gruel and saltine crackers, and so we're walking to the lunchroom, we'd pass their room, where they're in fluffy couches eating pizza and cupcakes, um, playing Rubik's Cubes, right? And we'd go down, dip our saltines in the gruel, and just, <laughs> what do you think happened? I can tell you what happened. The talented and gifted kids, they knew they were talented and gifted. They knew that there was something about them that was special. And the rest of us, we knew that we weren't special like they were. So we grew to dislike them. They grew to dislike us. Deep, divisive wall of hostility emerges among eight-year-olds. Totally different context, same problem. There's something deep inside of us that wants to take good things, be it our talents or strengths, or maybe it's even like our status at birth, which it's beneficial, like it helps you out in this world, blessings. There's something about us that wants to take those good things and instead of using them to bless other people, we use them to distinguish ourselves from other people. We use them as a means of building a wall to feel superior to other people. We're not like them, we're different, we're unique. I mean, this truth is evident to any parent of small children. Like let's say your kids, you gotta have at least two for this illustration work, but let's say your, your kids, they eat broccoli at dinner, you know, they do that and so you wanna reward them and you're gonna give them gummy bears. You learn really early on as a parent, you can't just open the jar and give a handful to one and a handful to another. Why? Because if you give a handful to one and it has seven or eight gummy bears, and you give a handful of four or five to the other, they're not going to say, oh, that's strange. You got a little more. Who cares? Here, you know what? You have one of mine. Let's, let's be equal. What are they going to do? They're going to say, I got more gummy bears than you did. Dad loves me more. Mom loves me more. I'm better than you. Somehow, they're going to take this, this <laughs> extra piece of candy and say, I'm superior to you. Now, I... I've never, and my wife, neither of us have ever taught our kids any chance you get to feel superior to your siblings, you jump on it. I don't care if it's gummy bears. Any chance you get to show them that you're better, we want competition in this house. Never done that. Didn't have to teach them to do that. They just do it. Why? It's hardwired into us because of sin. It's not just kids, unfortunately. It's all of us. We use any and everything we can to, we can find to divide people into groups of insiders and outsiders. We use the zip codes we live in. We, live, we use the kinds of homes we own, the cars we drive, the jobs we have, the way we give birth to our children, the way we parent our children, the, the kind of school we send our children to, the kind of food we eat or don't eat. Some of you are very proud that you... You eat all foods that are clean, no GMOs. Others of you are proud that you eat foods that are rich in GMOs. And 
And I mean, we use all of these things and we say, hey, here's, here's a dividing wall. Here's a way for me to feel superior. Take our politics, our current political situation. You know, I've met people on both sides of the political spectrum who are civil, respectful to those they disagree with, even curious. You probably have too, but I've also met a whole lot of people who are demeaning and disdainful of those on the other side from them. What's the difference? What separates the two? I used to think it's like the commitment to the cause, but that's not true. Some of the like greatest thinkers that I know on both sides of the aisle, they're really civil and respectful. What's the difference? Well, some people have thought long and hard about how society should be ordered and governed and drawn some conclusions. And they say, I vote this way because this is the way I think the world will best be structured. Other people, it's not about, hey, I think this is probably what's best. It's a matter of identity. And one of the ways they find their identity is in their politics. And it's not just in who they vote for. It's really who they stand in opposition to. We're better. We're superior. They're dumb. And now we have entire television stations that just feed that of demeaning the other side. Insiders, outsiders. MLK weekend, let's think about race in our country. Think about Jim Crow. What are Jim Crow laws? You can have a water fountain. We're gonna have a water fountain too. You just can't have our water fountain. You can ride on the bus, but you can't ride where we ride. You have to sit on this separate part, dividing wall of hostility. See, the same thing that led to slavery, to Jim Crow laws, the thing that leads to deep divisions in our country at this moment, it's the same force that makes me count out every single gummy bear before I hand it to my kids. It's this incessant, relentless drive to divide people into insiders or outsiders, to split people into groups. C.S. Lewis, he once gave a lecture entitled The Inner Ring, and he, he puts words to this phenomenon when he writes, one of the most dominant elements of our lives is the desire to get into the inner ring and the terror of being left outside. This desire is one of the great permanent mainsprings of human action. It is one of the factors which makes up the world as we know it, this whole pell-mell of struggle and competition. And Lewis is saying, if you want to get down to the bottom of what's wrong with our world, you have a whole bunch of people who want to be on the inside and are terrified of being on the outside. And if you're willing to be honest, you know this is at work in your own heart. Like, why do you get bitter if your friends got together and hung out and they didn't call you? Why do you get bitter, angry, if you find out someone had a party, a party that you probably wouldn't have even gone to? but you didn't get an invite. Why do you so desperately want that promotion at work? There might be good reasons, but it also might be because you think, once I get there, I'll finally be in. See, the reason peace is so elusive, the reason hostility reigns 
in our world and even in the church is because we're, we're obsessed with creating dividing walls of hostility. We as a people, we're just prone to throwing up barriers because we all want to be insiders. We're terrified of being outsiders. So many of our problems in life have this as the, at the root of their cause. So much of your anxiety in life is because you're terrified of being an outsider. So much of your depression is because you feel like an outsider. And you go back to the church in this day, you had one group, worthy insiders. You had another group, they're weird, worthy insiders. Really, through the conflict, all they're doing is throwing more bricks on the wall. That's the root of a problem. Now, what does God, God doesn't leave us there. And Paul doesn't leave us there. What's God's solution to our problem? Let's read verses 14 and 15 again. Paul tells us that Jesus himself is our peace, who has made us one, so he's saying the wall's down, made us one, and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. He's torn that wall down. How? By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace. What Paul's saying here, and this, it's a, you got to do a little bit of theological work, so you got to hang with me. He's saying the wall that was the law in Christ has been torn down. Now, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, I didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Paul here says Jesus abolished the law. It's a little confusing. Well, the reason Paul writes this, Jesus, he abolished the law by fulfilling it. And what he's saying here, Paul is arguing here, is that the law that God gave to the Israelites that separated them, that made them distinct, that was temporary. That was a temporary arrangement. When Christ came, that arrangement was put to an end. The law, it, was, it offered signs and shadows of how to connect with God, of how to approach God in our sin. It offered ceremonies, but it was temporary. And when Christ came, the law was the shadow. He was the fulfillment. All of that that existed for a little while, it's like Jesus comes along and he says, that, that's no longer how we distinguish between people. When he tore down the wall, hostility of the law, all of a sudden he's saying, all right, Jews, you no longer can feel superior because you do X, Y, and Z. And I mean, that was the Pharisees, right? We tithe. We tithe of our mint. We do all of these righteous things. And Jesus, he's never impressed by them. He never looks and says, look how moral they are. Instead, what we see with Jesus is like, okay, but they're in. Through the cross, he, he didn't just tear down their dividing wall of hostility and, and abolishing the law. He tore down every wall of hostility that divides us. Because if you think about it, do you know why we have this relentless, incessant drive and desire to be on the inside? It's because we all, at some level, I think it's a memory trace. It goes back to the Garden of Eden, but we all... We all have this sense that we're outsiders. We all have this fear of being on the outside. And this goes back. 
goes back to the fall. You know, before the fall, in the garden, there was no competition, there was no struggle, there was no racism, there was no war. There was nothing but peace. But when Adam and Eve, they ate the forbidden fruit, that peace went away rapidly. It was lost. They instantly, they felt that their relationship with God, something bad had happened between them and God, and so they go and hide. But then it also, it does something profound to their relationship. Their relationship where it was perfect marital bliss up till then, now they start blaming and attacking one another. There's walls of hostility. Whose fault was this? They have two sons. One of the sons murders the other son. Cain murders Abel. You know why? Because Cain thought for sure that Abel was on the inside and he was on the outside. And the way he was going to tear down the wall was by destroying his brother. The reason we feel this way is because we know we've been alienated from God. And, and actually, at the end of Genesis 3, God banishes Adam and Eve and all of humanity from the garden as a symbol of the fracture in their relationship. We read that after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the Garden of Eden cherubim and the flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. We all live east of Eden. Because of our sin, we all live cut off from God, the source of all true power, beauty, and wisdom. Because of sin, we all feel like outsiders. Now, the Jews, they had something they could go to to kind of deal with their pain. I'm going to deal with this sense by, I'm going to be very good. I'm going to be very disciplined. I'm going to do these things. And for hundreds of years, a lot of them found a lot of comfort. Look at all of the things that I do. Look at my morality, my social standing, my cleanliness. But Paul says that the cross destroys any of those grounds for boasting. And the reason why is because the cross shows us that no matter how moral we are, no matter what sacrifices we make, there's nothing that any of us can ever do in our own power to put ourselves back in right relationship with God. I mean, if we could be moral enough that God would be like, well, yeah, your parents... Grandparents, everyone's kind of been a screw-up, but you're actually pretty good. I'm going to let you in. If there was anything we could do to be reconciled apart from God offering his son as a sacrifice, he would have done it. But there was nothing we could do. You see, and this is where the cross, it humbles us. And it's one of the stumbling blocks for the Jews. Because the cross said it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter how good you are. It was your sin, as we sing, that held him there. The cross reveals that the problems of this world are not just out there with those people or in that, that situation. The problems of the world are ultimately in here. And the only way we can be made right with God is by God moving towards us in grace. And in Ephesians verses, chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, that's Paul's big emphasis he writes, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us even when we were dead. You want to know how bad our sin is? He doesn't say even when you were bad. He says even when you were dead and your trespasses and sins. He made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. So one of the ways the wall comes down through the cross experientially 
is it humbles you. Like, how can you move through life feeling like you're better than a particular race or social class? How can you move through life thinking you're better than someone because of your education when you know that your sin was so bad that it put the Son of God on the cross? How can you be cocky? How can you feel superior to anyone? How can you take pride in your heritage or your your race? See, the cross lowers us by revealing to us the depths of our sin, but the cross also lifts us because in the cross we have access to the Father. Verse 17 and 18, Paul says, he, this is Jesus, he came and preached peace to you or far off. Paul saying, you Gentiles who didn't know the law, who've kind of always been outsiders, he came and preached peace to you. And then he says, but he also, Jews, you who are near, knew more about God. He came and preached peace to you who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So yes, our... our our sin, our sin reveals, the cross reveals the depth of our sin and it lowers us, but it also lifts us because the cross, through the cross, Jesus paved the way for us to get back to the Father. Through the cross, Jesus restores what was lost in the garden. The relationship with God that was broken the way God dealt with that fully and finally was by sending his son to be broken for us. And through the cross, we now have access back into the presence of God, not just as our almighty God, but as our father. Do you see what Paul's saying here? He's saying that in Christ, you're in the only inner ring that matters. The only ring that matters in this world that relativizes everything else, he's saying you're in, in Christ. You have the love of God. He's your father. And that relativizes everything else in this world. The cross frees us from the need to find our identity in comparing ourselves to others because we have access That's God's solution. So how should this shape us and shape our prayers? Well, in one sense, to pray unite us, that's, that's a bit redundant because the scripture makes it clear that in Christ, we are already brothers and sisters. The unity is already there. Paul, chapter 4, will say, maintain the unity of the spirit. So we're not saying, Lord, positionally make us one. We are already one positionally. The challenge is we don't live into what's most true about us. And so how do we pray God experientially and visibly may outwardly we represent what's true of us in the heavenlies? I got three prayers, three ways to pray that God would unite us. First, in praying unite us, we're asking God to to deepen our understanding of and hope in the gospel. There's a lot of ways that we can pursue peace in this world. But the only way we'll find lasting peace with one another is when we don't view each other as competition, trying to get into the different inner rings. So we're praying, asking God, help us to believe what is already true. 
Help us to believe that we are your sons and your daughters. Help us to believe and live into the reality that we have access to the Father. Because to the degree that you know God as your Father, that's the degree to which you will be set free from this relentless desire to prove yourself, to get or to stay in the inner rings of this world. There are an awful lot of Christians who would say, yes, I believe Jesus died for my sins. Yes, I believe I'm forgiven. Yes, I believe God is my Father. But you only believe it on a certain level because you still live like you're terrified of being an outsider. You're still in practice trying to claw your way into whatever inner ring you think is going to satisfy you. And I swear, the older you get, you know this, right? It, they don't work. They don't satisfy. Like They never do. It's always the mirage on the horizon. We always think the next one, once I get here in my career or relationships or zip code or this kind of car, we think, then I'm finally going to feel this sense of security and peace. And maybe you do for a month. But then you say, well, gosh, you get to know other people there. And you're like, no, I think I need to be in the next one up. And so many Christians, they're not living into their relationship with God and living out of it. Instead, they're still trying to claw their way in. It makes us miserable. But as our knowledge and trust in the promises of God increases, here's what happens. Instead of us trying to, to shrink down our rings and build the walls and make them even more exclusive, as our knowledge of the love of God increases, we actually find our rings not shrinking but expanding. We find our capacity for others growing, not shrinking. And I actually think that's a great test. It's one of the great ways to examine yourself. Where am I at with God? Where am I at in the progress of growing into maturity? Well, is your ring, your, your inner ring, expanding or shrinking? I mean, Jesus modeled the way for us. It's part of what got him killed. The Jews are like, we only eat with certain people. The Pharisees, Sadducees, we've worked hard to build these. And Jesus came in. And he's like, okay, but the prostitutes welcome at our dinner too. Because my ring's big enough for her. And if it's not for you, then I'll leave. But you're not kicking her out. First, in praying unite us, we're asking God to deepen our understanding and hope in the gospel. Second, in praying unite us, this is a dangerous prayer. We're asking God to humble us. Now, there's two kinds of peace. Worldly peace, superficial peace, which is we're going to do our best to get along in spite of our differences. But there's a supernatural peace in the scriptures, which, which is a peace where we say we're actually going to press into our differences and we're going to learn from one another. It's a kind of peace that can only be born out of deep humility because it's a kind of peace that requires everyone to show up at the table and say, I know some things, I'm kind of smart, but I also am really sinful. And I know that my thinking gets distorted. I know I have blind spots. I know I'm not right on everything. Now, this is obvious, but we just don't live like that. And so in praying unite us, we're saying, God, humble me. Remind me, I don't have it all figured out. 
Remind me, I've been wrong about so many things. So many things in like the last month that I should have a little bit of modesty in my convictions, especially when they're not around core Christian truths and they're around things like politics. Maybe even in praying, humble us, what we're really praying is, God, make me curious. Curiosity is a virtue that seems to be lost in our day. Biblically, I think there are a few places I could go, but I think James 1 makes a great case, Christian case for the importance of curiosity when James says, let everyone be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. James is saying, when you roll in places, instead of just arguing why you're right, maybe you should just be quiet for a little bit and see what you can learn. And then when you speak, speak thoughtfully. See, curiosity, I think curiosity is a sign of holiness. Curiosity also just makes you interesting. There's no one, <laughs> there's very little I find interesting in people who just parrot talking heads. That's not interesting. What's interesting is when I encounter a Christian and we disagree about something, maybe even something really important, and they'll ask, hey, tell me why you believe the way you do. And they're not like asking, like, not asking me to bump it so they can just spike it back in my face. They're generally curious. Why do you think that? Or, or they'll tell you about their journey. I used to believe this, and here's scriptures I read, life experiences. Here's why I believe this. That's beautiful, and that's how unity, real supernatural unity happens. That won't happen without curiosity, and it won't happen without humility. Praying unite us. We're asking God to humble us, make us curious. And then lastly, in praying unite us, we're asking God to grant us a spirit of gentleness. While humility should foster a spirit of curiosity, and while we should probably ask a lot more questions and listen more, there's still going to come times where, as long as we're in this fallen world, we're going to disagree on some things. We can pray, we can read the same books, we can debate, but sometimes we're just going to disagree. And what do we do when we come to that place? Well, the New Testament seems to make it pretty clear that when we face real deep disagreements, the way we should do it is with gentleness. Paul, just two chapters later, as he's saying, all right, Jews and Gentiles, here's how you live. Here's how you live into the calling. He tells them, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Paul's he knows they're not going to get along on everything. He knows that some of the Jews, they're never going to be able to eat a bacon cheeseburger, no matter how many times they've read the scriptures that says you're allowed to do that. That's okay. They're going to have this conviction. They're going to have a different, how do you live together? Paul says you've got to be completely humble and gentle. Now, gentleness, it's not seen as a particularly desirable trait in our day, both outside the church and inside the church. I think when we come to fundamental disagreements, we actually think that, that gives us permission to just disregard gentleness. I mean, you look in the world and you look in the church 
we don't respond with gentleness, kindness, patience as much as we respond by dunking on people we disagree with, by slamming them, by dancing on their graves. See, prominent Christians do this. And we all have blind spots. But man, to me, that shows that they haven't immersed themselves in the New Testament enough, or at least not in a while. You go read the New Testament again and again, there is a call to gentleness. One of the callings of a pastor, one of the requirements, standards of being a pastor, is you've got to be able to correct people, but you've got to be able to do it with gentleness. It's the fruit of the Spirit. So curiosity, I mean, could you imagine what a community would look like if we were grounded? I know God loves me and I'm secure in that. We're humbled. I know I don't have it all figured out. I could learn from other people. And then even when you disagree, you can say, gosh, I think you're wrong. But you're still my brother or sister. And you know what? I've been wrong about plenty of things. And I'm thankful that people didn't write me off for it. That's how we start growing in unity. And that's what we need to pray for. We pray that knowing that Jesus never said, blessed are the hostile. Never said, blessed are the sarcastic. He said, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. So as we come to the table, the bread got stolen. Um, it's as we come to the table, I mean, is there... I don't know if there's a greater picture of the unity we have in Christ than what we celebrate at communion. Where Jesus is with his disciples, a lot of them different. He breaks a loaf of bread. He said, this is my body broken for you. And then he lifts the cup. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. My blood poured out for you. And he told them, I want you to do this in, in remembrance of me and what I'm doing for you. And so symbolically as a church, we take part symbolically in one, a shared loaf and a shared cup. And the way we do communion here is we tear off a piece of the bread and we dip it in the wine or the juice. But the, the symbolism is we all, we find our community through the death of Christ in our place. So if you're here and you're a Christian, I encourage you to come and to eat and to drink and to be reminded of what Christ has done to bring us into God's family. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we ask that you not take part in this meal, but you take part in Jesus Christ. We don't want you to have an experience and miss the meaning. Instead, we want you to flee and run to the one who gave his life so that you could be welcomed back in. Let me pray. I'm Kevin Jameson, lead pastor at Sojourn East. Thanks for listening. For more sermons, info about our church, and ways you can support the ministry of Sojourn East, visit sojournchurch.com east.